thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So then we uh, continue the study of the book of Genesis with chapter 41. Chapter 40 was, uh, we saw Joseph stuck in jail, where the cupbearer and the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the bread maker had dreams. And as they came out, they forgot completely about him. Actually, one could not forget about him, he was dead. The other one who survived, the cupbearer, forgot about him. And now we're going to pick up what happened after two years. So uh, if you have your, uh, uh, your Bibles with you, follow with me, uh, beginning chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed, dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, sleek and fat, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, gaunt and thin, came out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the gaunt and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamt a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret it to Pharaoh. Then the chief butler said to Pharaoh, I remember my faults today, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamt. On the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own meaning. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came to pass. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. And I have heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile, and seven cows, fat and sleek, came out of the Nile and fed in reed grass. And seven other cows came up after them, poor and very gaunt and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin and gaunt cows ate up the first seven fat cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as gaunt as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, and seven ears withered, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And a thin ear swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what, is about, what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dream is one. The seven lean and gaunt cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. <clears throat> the famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of that famine which will follow, for it will be very grievous. And a, and a doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a man discreet and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take the fifth part of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine which are to befall the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a man as this, in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discreet and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his, his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and arrayed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in his second chariot and they cried before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent no man shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphenath Paneath, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plenteous years, the, ear, the, the earth brought forth abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years when there was plenty in the land of Egypt and, and stored up food in the cities. He stored up in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, Joseph had two sons, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. 
Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began, began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to, Joseph, to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So, before we begin uh, delving through the chapter, I, it is important to look at two very uh, essential facts in this whole chapter, which we might not really focus on. The first one, in the interpretation that Joseph gives Pharaoh, there is not a single shred of doubt in Joseph's mind that what is to pass is God's doing. Joseph is very, very clear. Joseph doesn't say, Mother Earth is going through its usual cycle. We have El Nino and then we have El Nina. And because of all of these perturbation in the, in the ecology, there's going to be um, years of plenty followed by years of famine. Now famine, years of famine were, were um, I won't say frequent, but they happened regularly in Egypt. It was not uh, something new. And the reason is, as you know, Egypt essentially draws all its uh, life from the Nile. Now, the, it does not rain in Egypt. Or if it does, it's really exceptional. So where does the water come from? It comes from way down south, up in the mountains. Now, if it does not rain there, there isn't enough water, hence famine follows. The cycle is very well understood. It was very well understood even to the Egyptians back then. Joseph does not look at it from the mechanics of nature. He's not denying them. He's not ignoring them. He's not saying they don't exist. He's simply saying this is not the cause. This is a mechanism. Contrast this with our approach today, and you will begin to understand one of the reasons why our prayers are so weak. You can't go to your father and ask him to do something for you if you are not convinced in his power. Make sense? Jesus, whenever he met somebody who needed something from him, would tell this person, what do you want me to do for you? And the person would answer, Lord, that I may see, or Lord, that I may be healed. And sometimes Jesus will say, 
do you believe that I can do such a thing? And the person will say, yes, Lord, I do. And then the Lord will answer, go, your faith has healed you. Your faith. Now, it does not mean that he didn't do the healing. Jesus did the healing, but he did the healing. Why? Because of the faith. And why would he do such a thing? Because at the end of the day, our Lord knows very, very well something we tend to ignore very, very well. And that is, we're going to die. Hence, no matter what physical healing he brings to us, it's only what? Temporary. Temporary. Therefore, he is really interested in the only thing that matters for our eternal well-being. Faith. Yes? Okay. We see earthquakes happening. We, we see tornadoes. We see big natural events. And we have been conditioned and convinced that these are part of the natural cycle. And so we put ourselves in this sort of theological no man's land. Well, you know, these things happen out there. right? God, as an absentee father, why? Because many of our fathers are actually absentee fathers these days, had set this whole courtyard for us to play in it, and sometimes things break. Well, what can he do? He's not always there to fix them. So we have this kind of attitude of a remote father, one that does not involve himself in these things, particularly when they're bad. Well, God cannot be the source of them, can he now? Why? Because of the other problem we have with the representation of God the Father. To us, God the Father is, you've heard me say it many times, Santa Claus. Have you ever seen Santa Claus bring you a really bad gift or worse, a cursed gift? No. Therefore, God cannot do anything we deem bad. He only do the good part. As to the bad part, well, what can he do? Poor God. Nature messes up from time to time. We mess up. You know, it's an imperfect world. We have an imperfect God. I just want you to realize the depth of our own heresy when it comes to the Trinity. And what I'm saying to you is very prevalent, if not explicitly so in our mind, in our behavior, in our beliefs. Why? Because we're not Joseph. We do not dare interpret the acts of nature in terms of the acts of God. That's primitive. We're far more advanced now. We can sprout acronym till we're blue in the face, but we can't no longer, it seems, read the book of nature in light of the Word of God. We lost that ability. I just want you to in beginning the study, to contrast your own attitude with that of Joseph. What would you have done had you been called by Pharaoh? 
to interpret those dreams? What would have been your attitude? Would you have, been, would you have had the authority to answer the way Joseph did? Let's read that again. The dream of Pharaoh is one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what... Key in on verse 25. What? And read that for me out loud. Those of you who have scripture, please read it out loud. Finish this verse for me. What? What? He. Who's the he? God. God is about to do. There is not a shred of doubt in Joseph's mind that God is about to do something. Now, what is that thing that God is about to do? Seven years of plenty followed by what? Ah, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. God is doing both. All right, how many of you are comfortable with the notion that God is doing the seven years of plenty? Raise your hand. Comfortable, you feel comfortable with it. Who's, who's uncomfortable with the fact that God is doing the seven years of plenty? Okay, you're either comfortable or uncomfortable. It's one or the other. So let's do that again. All right, how many of you are comfortable with the fact that God can do the seven years of plenty? Yeah, that's much better. Okay. Now, how many of you have com are comfortable with the fact that God can send seven years of famine? Yeah, this is good. But there's some of you who are uncomfortable with this, right? Okay, yeah. See, this is the crux of the whole matter. If anything, one of the things that Scripture is trying to tell us, God works very differently than the way we work. Now, is there something, is there a verse in Scripture that can support what I'm telling you right now? Is there, is there something really explicit that Jesus said that supports what I'm trying to tell you? The Gospel of St. Matthew. Go back and read the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5 through chapter 8, which deals with the Beatitudes. Right? One of the most beautiful passages in the Gospel of St. Matthew, the Beatitudes. Yet in it, Jesus says something rather really interesting. What does he say about tomorrow? Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of yourself. And he says, what does he say about our hair? Not one hair falls to the ground. Now, do you think the God knows the word no here would be like, uh, you know, God has asked the Department of Angelic Statistics to open up their computers and then just keep track of how many hairs are falling to the ground? Is it that kind of knowledge? Keen on the word no. When Adam knew Eve, it, it, that did not mean Adam sat down and did an epistemological study on the nature of Eve, right? Okay, knowledge is not abstract intellectual thing that we sit down and think about. It is very intimate, and it implies implication. When Adam knew Eve, he was completely and fully engaged in the process of knowledge. What Jesus is saying is that not one hair of your head falls to the ground that God 
the supreme being is not behind it. Yeah? So now we go back to the seven. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Why the seven? What is the sign of? What is it the sign of? The covenant. The covenant. Seven years of blessings, seven years of curses. Once you understand that everything that flows throughout the world has as an ultimate cause God. Now, God wills certain things. God permits certain things. There is this permissive will. All that is true as far as proximate uh, causality is concerned. The proximate causality of something is the thing that causes it right away. So, for instance, um, a window is shattered by a ball. You might say that the proximate causality is the trajectory that the ball followed, right? Or the bat that hit the ball. That is proximate, right? But the ultimate causality might be the 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 um, the baseball match that people are playing, but that's not ultimate because what brought them together? And you keep on pushing back and back and back, and you come up to the final source, which is God. Hence, God is uh, behind everything. And now we have to. We, we, we're faced with this reality. Either God is behind everything or God permits something, but what does that really mean? That he's not behind them? No. God is behind everything and he rules the world through the covenant with blessings and curses. Once you accept this fact, now you begin to deal with the true nature of God. Once you accept that God will bless and God will curse... Now you begin to deal with the true nature of the Trinity. Now you understand God is otherworldly. God is not me. I'm not going to reduce God to be the little God that itch where I scratch because I'm comfortable with this kind of God. Now you accept that God is much bigger, much more powerful, all-encompassing, all-holy, just. Now the word justice has its weight. Because there are curses associated with our actions. And merciful. Because of all the blessings. And you understand that all the blessings are really His mercy. And even sometimes the curses are His mercy as well. Not just His justice. But now these words become weighty. God becomes substantial. And the other thing that it will give you, the great gift behind this, is peace. If you now trust truly that God is a loving Father, if you accept that God is in control of everything, and nothing that is happening right now lays outside of His control, regardless of whether we want to do it or He wants to allow it, any of that, all that, if we leave this whole complicated theological mess aside and simplify it down to something we can deal with, we're not theologians after all, right? We're just pilgrims trying to get to home. We're not doing this Bible study to become theologians. We're just doing this Bible study so we, we do what? We can get home. Right? If you simplify it down to this basic principle, then you realize, wait a minute, if God is evil, we're in big trouble. If God is like the Greek gods, we're in a huge trouble. Because those guys are not dependable. They're flaky. Sometimes they'll help you. Sometimes they'll be jealous of you. Sometimes they'll just kill you. So who is God then? Then you turn to the sun. You look at the cross. And you say, truly, God is love. Now, if you really believe that God is love, 
and you really believe that love is in control, how do you demonstrate that in your life? What happens in your life? What is the fruit of this knowledge? Peace. Joy. And contentment. No longer will you be riled by the events of the outside world. God is in control. No longer would you look at somebody who is promoting abortion as an enemy. He is, just as Pilate was, given authority from above. For what purpose? To glorify God. Everything becomes a conversation between you and God. Father, what are you doing? Help me read the events and interpret them with the wisdom of your church. Help me understand my time according to your holy wisdom. Just as you gave Joseph, a layman, that understanding. Make me understand so I may praise you. And you can live in peace. Do you know how many Catholics I know who are riled up, who are anxious, who are worried, who have a sense of despair, who consider that we are losing the battle. They speak of it as a battle between them and us. Who live their life reading the news and keeping track of all the bad guys are doing. Now, do we need to be engaged in the world? Absolutely. Do we need to do our best to stop evil practices? Absolutely. I'm not calling for passivism. Sit down, do nothing. God is in control. That's another heresy. It's quite the opposite. God is in control, therefore I can do a lot. He's in control. But let me find out what he wants me to do. And not go left and right and do things simply because I'm anxious. This is how you truly become Marian. You imitate Our Lady. How did she live in the world seeped into sin peacefully? How was she able to go to the temple and go through this rite of purification when she was all pure? Do you imagine Our Lady grumbling about the rite? How could they ask me to do this? Don't I know who I am? How could she go through the crucifixion and keep her peace and her joy? If she did not know all along that her son is in control. And what is happening is his holy will. And hence, all the events of the passion is a dialogue between her and him. Did she go through agony? You bet. Did she suffer? She did. But at no point did she despair. At no point did she rebel. At no point did she become bitter. If anything, going through all this agony raised her glory, which was already inconceivable for us to understand, to levels beyond our imagination. There was a great gift of her son to her. This is what he's doing today in your lives. You may have people in your families who are sick. You may have lost a job. You may be battling with children who are rebellious. You may have your own sets of weaknesses and anxieties. You may be in habitual sin and you're fighting and trying to get out of it and you're not able to. You may be You may have a sense that your life is broken and doesn't make sense. But if you put it in that perspective and you see it the way Joseph saw it, then you understand 
that your life is a crown in the making. That your life is a crown in the making. God is in control. And God is love. So if love is in control, it must bear fruit in your life. If you're anxious, and I'm not talking about neurological issues. You know, sometimes there's chemical imbalances in the brain. They need medication. I'm talking about regular anxiety. If you're impatient, if you're given to bouts of anger, if you're given to bouts of um, emotional eating, if you, are, you have issues with pornography, if you have issues with understanding your own role in your life and knowing where you must be today, all these things are a sign or a symptom of this broken relationship you have with the Trinity. It isn't. It has nothing to do with the world. It has nothing to do with the way the world is or how broken society is or any of those issues. God knows all that. And even in this broken up society, He can allow you to live in peace. If you understand, just as Joseph did, God is in control. And if you learn to read the signs of the times according to His glory and not according to man-made man uh, philosophy and wisdom, which is good, but it's just natural. Hence, it will never satisfy you. Do you understand? you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Do you have questions about what I just said right now? I'd rather take them now before I get into the details of this chapter. Yes. So what is the it you're referring to when you say it's, it's an effect of sin? What is that it? The broken relation with God. Um, you see, I, 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 I think that in most cases, the reason why we have a broken relationship with God is because in the final analysis, we have not been convicted in our hearts that God is in control and God is love. We are on our way. It's a journey. But we have not reached that point of conviction where we can completely surrender to Him and to His will. You see? And from there stems so many of our own ills. If we can completely surrender to God, like children would, take away our independence and our will to decide and accept His will instead, then many of these issues would go away. Yeah? So think of your soul as a lake, and the surface may be troubled. The surface may have a storm pushing waves, but in the depth of the lake, it's peaceful. Hence, the lake is capable of withstanding the storm. But all, of, all too often, what happens is that even the depth of the lake itself is troubled. There is no peace. That's the difference, I suppose, between what I'm talking about and the state of so many of us today. Yeah? Any other question? So if you understand what I said, you have to examine your life in light of this relationship. You have to examine your life in terms of the fruits of the Spirit. Are you peaceful? Are you content? Are you joyful? Do you have a sense that you are loved, complete, Despite everything, 
despite the difficulties. You and by the way, I'm not talking about feelings here. Your feelings may be in shambles. Feelings are what they are. Emotions are what they are. It's your actions. It's the way you conduct your life that matters. Yes. Yes. Indeed. If I say God is love, I do mean that God loves us. As St. John in his letter says, right? Brother, this is the truth. God is love, and God has loved us first. So it isn't that we loved him and then he returned his love to us. It's the other way around. We're only corresponding to the love of God. He initiated at the first. Absolutely. So, yes, um, your feelings are... Usually you will not be able to control your feelings uh, when you start on a spiritual journey. Your feelings will get in line eventually. What you really want to focus on is how you're living your life today. What are your actions demonstrating? Do they demonstrate trust in God? So, for instance, let's take an example. Um, you, you're, you're, um, you lost your job, or your husband lost your job, or something, you're, you're going through a stressful situation, and yet somebody wants to call your friend and wants to talk to you about their problem. Do you have the capacity to listen? That's showing trust in God. Oh, Lord, you're sending me this person. I'm, I'm going to listen to her. Are you able to set aside your own problems and listen to this other person? You're showing trust in God. You're saying, you're in control. I understand you've taken these means away from us, but I still trust in you, and I believe you will take care of us. How? I don't know. You will show us the way. So I'm not going to worry about it. That is a way in, where you demonstrate, indeed, your trust in God. You see? And that's why oftentimes so many of our prayers are left unanswered, because we live with such a shallow faith. As long as things are going well for me, as, as long as things are within certain boundaries that are acceptable for me, I'm fine, I believe. But as soon as the, God pushes the envelope a little bit on me, I'm way out there. Case in point, Joseph. He is in jail for something he did not commit. He was sold, he was thrown by his brothers in the pit. His brothers wanted to kill him. Then he was kidnapped by the, um, um, not the Ishmaelites, the other guys, the, um, the Hittites, was it? No. Well, some cousins, basically. They could, they, who kidnapped him and sold him to the Ishmaelites, who then sold him as a slave in Egypt. While sold as a slave in Egypt, worked in the house of his master, did his duty, and the wife of his master accused him of doing something um, absolutely evil, and he got thrown in jail, left there, and when he helped those guys and told them to remember him, they forgot about him. He forgot about, this guy forgot about him for two years. His, two years. And now Joseph shows up. And the Pharaoh tells him the dream, and Pharaoh tells him specifically in verse 15, and I have heard it said that of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. What is he telling Joseph when he says, I have heard of you that when you can hear a dream, you can interpret it? What is Joseph to Pharaoh? A magician. Remember, I told you last week, in Egypt, they had a whole school of magician who interpreted dreams. They had the book of dreams that would say, if this happens, then this is good. If that happens, then this is bad. Right? 
they had schooling into dream interpretation. It took a magician to do that. So when, when Pharaoh is speaking to Joseph, he's raising him up. He's giving him a position of, res- of respect in his, in his court. You are a great magician. You're able to do what none of my magicians can do for me. So he's flattering him. He is telling him how great he is. And notice Joseph's answer. Joseph says right away, It is not mean. God will give the answer. Do you think Joseph has already the answer to the dream when he answered this way? No. He doesn't have the answer. Joseph is speaking the truth. He does not have special powers. It isn't that God gave him, endowed him with special powers on a permanent basis for him to interpret dreams. He doesn't have that. He's just like you and me. No different when he answers this question. If you imbue Joseph with special powers, you're missing the whole point. If you're thinking, oh, Joseph is so special. God gave him this, you know, he's downloaded into him this processing thing that allows him to interpret dreams. No. Joseph has no innate ability to interpret dreams. He's just like you and me. No different. So I go back and ask you the same question. What would you have done if somebody flattered you? In, um, if, let's say, tomorrow, uh, Mr. Obama calls you and asks you to come up to the, to the White House to help him frame the economic policy of the United States for the next 14 years. All his... All these, uh, all these experts in economy are there, and none was able to provide him the answer. And he tells you, I have heard it said that you can provide the economy the United States needs for the next 14 years. The cameras are, are there, CNN is there, all the attention is on you. What would you say? What would you say to that? Do you know that if you said, yes, I can, the following day, you'll have three or four multi-million dollar contract for you to write the story of your life and that of your aunt and your mother-in-law and your family down to the sixth generation. Movies will be made. You're a hero. You, are, you, you became known across the entire globe. Do, do you understand what Joseph was faced with? Because the story looks a little bit drab from our perspective. You know, Pharaohs and Joseph and all that. Who cares? Try to understand, capture what was offered to Joseph on a golden platter, and he just refused it. Look at it differently. Uh, You're working in a company. Think about the most amazing thing could happen to you, and somebody with power just puts it on a golden platter, and, oh, by the way, you've been in jail for probably... Seven to ten years for a crime you didn't commit? What would you think you're going to say? Retribution? They owe me. Thank you, God. This is the time for you to pay me. You see the Santa Claus mentality? We would look at it and say, well, God is giving this to me as an occasion to pay me back for all the Santa Claus mentality. Joseph doesn't do that. He does not accept the offer. It is not me. Statement of truth. Now, watch the number of of virtuous action he takes. 
This is what I'm talking to you. This is how you demonstrate the fruit of your life. First, Joseph performs an act of humility. What is humility? Humility is to know yourself as God sees you. Humility does not mean if you are the fastest runner on earth to say you're not, or if you're the best cook in the world to say you're not. Humility is not to renounce or to push away the virtues that God gave you. If you're a beautiful woman, humility is not to say, no, I'm not a beautiful woman. That's false humility. That's vanity. Or it's a mechanism you might put in place to defend yourself against jealousy or envy. But it's not humility. Humility is to recognize the truth about you. That's humility. It is not me. Okay? Act of humility. Next, act of piety. What is piety? Piety is the virtue by which we give God what is His due. And what is God's due? We must give to God the glory. We glorify God. Right? In particular, when we come to Mass on Sunday, we're not coming to receive. We're all into this give me mentality. Right? God is Santa Claus, and now we're going to get. Right? No. We come to Mass on Sunday to give God the glory that is His due. We're just doing our duty. That's all we're doing. It's a duty of piety. We're not being saints. We're not being holy. We're doing what we must do. Give God the glory. Now, obviously, you can never outdo God in generosity. And whatever little glory we give Him during Mass, He returns it. And He lavishes upon us the body and blood, soul and divinity of His Son. And by the way, you can't come to Mass on Sunday and give God the glory if during your week you did nothing. Your week is a preparation for Sunday Mass. If during the week you didn't offer God any sacrifice, you didn't do any little act of charity, you didn't do something to show that you love Him, you're coming empty-handed on Sunday. you got nothing to offer. It's hypocritical to come to Mass on Sunday when your whole week you did nothing to say, thank you, God. Nothing. You didn't think of him. You didn't pray. You hadn't had time to look at your brother, the poor, the marginalized. You didn't say hello to somebody, listen to someone, even if you didn't feel... You didn't any of that. And you're going to come on Sunday to give God the glory? So, act of piety. It is not me. It is God. Hmm? Next, he says... God will give Pharaoh a favor. What is that? What is he doing? An act of faith. Yeah. For a man in jail for 10 years, had been sold to slavery, he was going to be killed by his brothers, and he does not have the sacraments. He's not baptized. If God can do such a marvelous thing in the life of a man stuck in jail in Egypt, pagan Egypt, run by demons without the sacraments, how much can He do in your lives when you say the rosary? How much more if you're receiving the sacraments and you doubt His goodness and you're concerned about what might happen to you? Look at Joseph. This story was not written for Joseph. Joseph couldn't care less that the story was written about him. He died a long time ago. This, as St. Paul tells us, was written for us, 
for our edification. This is how God is telling us, my children, I love you. If I can do this for Joseph, how much more will I do for you who call upon my name through the blood of my son and the intercession of the woman I love most? Where is your faith? This is what Joseph did. A layman like you and me. No special powers. No special anything about him. An act of faith. Boldly done. And he lived by it. All right. Let's try and go through the details. If we can. So the first thing I want to point out to you, I'm going to point out a couple of brief things in, in this because we're coming to the, we have about 15 minutes to go before the close of the hour. Um, the first thing is when Pharaoh says, no one can interpret this dream to me, for me, he does not mean that the magicians did not try. They all tried. But probably what he received from them is the usual flattery. You're great, O Pharaoh. You're the greatest. You're a god. This and that and the other. Right? Remember, Pharaoh was a self-proclaimed god. He was divine according to his own, and yet he is unable to proclaim, figure out what the dream is all about. Why? Because to the Egyptians and most of the ancient, gods, the gods, were not perfect. So don't take the understanding you have of God, according to our religion, and project it on the Egyptians, or the Greeks, or the Romans, or the Phoenicians, or any of those guys, or even the Hindus today. I have a number of friends who work with me at, at my work who are Indian, and there are Hindus. And one of them will tell me right out, you know, we, we curse our gods sometimes. So there's a god for dancing, and a god for this, and a god for that. So their, their, their uh, jurisdiction, if you will, is limited. Hence to Pharaoh, there is no contradiction if, let's say, Joseph's god is able to do something that he can't do, or the Egyptian's god can't do. It does not, nor, don't, don't also, don't think that it implies that he now is a believer in a true God. He's very pragmatic. He's noticing our gods are unable to do it right now. But hey, there's this God over here who can do it. All right. And this God has this guy working for him. Exactly. Maximum access. That's exactly what it is. So who am I going to appoint? Am I going to go and then anger this God and appoint somebody else? I'm not going to do that. I'll appoint the guy who came and spoke with Right? Here's a question for you. Why, why did Elijah go to heaven on a chariot of fire? Let me put the question differently. Why is it that God did not send Elijah a Cadillac? Or a, or, or a Humvee? Or, or a donkey? Why was it a chariot, and why was it on fire? I mean, why wasn't frozen, or just plain normal chariot? Why was it on fire? Anybody has an inkling? To why? Yes. You mean Elijah? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting answer, and there is a lot of truth in it, absolutely. But the reason why he sent him a chariot on fire was because back then, Elijah was contending with whom? Who was he fighting, Elijah? Who did he kill? No, he didn't kill any emperor. He killed priests. The priests of who? Baal, right? 
Now, what is Baal? Baal comes from Phoenicia, right next door, modern Lebanon, known as Baal or Baal Adon in some cases, and he was the Phoenician god. How was he depicted in the Phoenician mythology? He was related to the sun, and he was depicted riding a chariot from sun, sunrise to sunset, a fiery chariot. So God often used this image of him riding on a chariot. You'll find it in the Psalms, actually, speaking of God. Why? Because back then they needed to know, my God is stronger than your God. When Israel was contaminated by the worship of Baal, God had to communicate to his children, look, you're going after that guy? Guess what? I'm a lot stronger than he. Now, for us, we might think, oh, that's really primitive. Okay? Today, if God were to write something, right? And if we were to follow the same mentality, he'd probably be writing an atomic bomb. If you wanted to convey I'm much more powerful than you guys, maybe he'll use a, a UFO, I don't know, a saucer or something, right? He'll use some sort of imagery that we associate power with if he wanted to reveal to us that he's a lot stronger than these other guys. Okay? So, Pharaoh thought of himself as God, but had no qualm with having another God who seemed to be better in that department. And it looked like this God had something to do with Egypt. So, okay, who am I to say to this God not to do what he wants? Right? Pantheism believes in multiple gods. You see, the devil is very happy, very, very happy, if you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, you worship Jesus, as long as you worship somebody else. He doesn't have to take, take you away from the worship of Jesus. He doesn't have to do that. All he has to do is make sure you worship somebody else. As you're doing those two things, he's very happy. So he recognized, So notice how God speaks to Pharaoh. God spoke to Pharaoh using a cryptic language, symbolic imagery. Yeah? God does that with the world consistently. When God speaks to the world, he does not use spoken words. Contrast the dream of Pharaoh with the dream of St. Joseph. Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for the child that is, that is uh, in her is from God. Very clear and explicit, direct. Or, Joseph, get up, take your wife and a child and go down to Egypt. Right, for somebody, for Herod is seeking to kill him. Very clear does not require interpretation. So it is today. When God speaks to the Catholic Church, He speaks with clarity, using words. How does He speak to us? Through the encyclicals that the Holy Father write, which we don't read. You have eyes and you do not see, and you have ears and you do not hear. That applies to us. How many of us read church documents? How many of us are aware of the teachings of the church? We don't think this is necessary. Oh, Scripture, yeah. The teachings of the church, not necessary. You know the Nicene Creed is not in Scripture? The creed that we... It's not in Scripture. Where is that coming from? Why do we recite it? That's by the authority of the church. The proclamation of faith is by the authority. It's not in Scripture. You know that when you're going to go to your personal judgment... 
Jesus is going to hold you responsible for all, all, all the laws of the church. In the eyes of Jesus, they are as important as Scripture. We have this teeny-weeny little window for God in our time, in our week. Teeny-weeny. As small as we can make it be. We think of God, we don't think of the church. You want a sure sign of your love for God? You want to know, if you ask yourself, do I love God? How do I know if I love God? This is how you know if you love God. If you do not have devotion to the church, love, true filial love to the church, you do not love God. He who does not have the Catholic Church as his mother does not have God as his father. St. Ambrose and St. Augustine. How do you know if you have love for the church? Very simple. If you have devotion to the priests and the bishops and the Holy Father and you pray for them. That's how. So, he, he tells him his dream and immediately the interpretation comes from Joseph. He understands it because God gives him what? What does God give Joseph on the spot? Something he gave all of you when you were confirmed. Prophetic spirit. What is the spirit of prophecy? Is the spirit of prophecy to be able to tell who's going to win the lotto in three weeks from now? No. The spirit of prophecy isn't, oh, I can tell you what's going to happen on July 22nd, 2013. Well, most likely I can tell you what's going to happen on July 22nd, 2013. Pretty much what happened today. Events don't change from day to day that much, really. But is that what it is? No. The spirit of prophecy is the spirit that enables us, all of us, through our com common royal priesthood. We are priests, prophets, and kings. All of us. This is what the Holy Spirit pours upon us. The spirit of prophecy is the spirit to be able to understand and interpret the events of the day in light of the will of God. That's the spirit of prophecy. So, for instance, Elijah or Isaiah, when they would speak these oracles, an oracle of, uh, of, of the Lord against Egypt, they would look at political events or economic events or crisis and interpret them in light of the actions of God. So if you have that spirit and you see what's going on today in the world, in light of Scripture, in light of what happened before, if you understand the pattern, it, is, it becomes very clear that what is happening today is what happened before. Right? God is in the process of bringing judgment upon this world. And we are in the very early warning signs, which match what we see in the book of the prophets, which match what we see in the book of Revelation. These are the early warning signs of God to, about to punish the world. Now, I think it was the wife of uh, a Protestant preacher, his wife, forgot his name now, said, if God doesn't punish us for what we're doing in abortion, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Billy Graham's wife. So, so this is not something I'm telling you as if it's, uh, you know, I've, I've got exclusivity or some sort of a trademark over it or patent. This is part of the heritage of Christians who live by the Spirit. Now, again, what I'm saying to you right now is unfallible. 
this is my view on it. And my view is just my view. Very different when the church speaks. The beauty with the church is that when she speaks, she's always infallible. She's always right. Yes. So wisdom is not necessarily the ability to interpret events in light of um, the, the word of God or his will. Wisdom is the ability to make decisions that are congruent with the will of God. Right? When he gives you the spirit of wisdom, you are able to make a decision in difficult circumstances which is congruent with the will of God. And even when you make a mistake, even when you make a mistake, even when you make the wrong choice, you still come out winner. Right? Exhibit A, St. Joseph. St. Joseph thought about what he was going to do. He put a lot of thought into it and decided to let Our Lady go quietly because he was going to take the blame. And then God intervened. God let him make a decision and then he intervened and said, Joseph, no, don't do that. Do this. Right? That's the beauty with God. You're never alone. You're never alone. Absolutely. Joseph was very clear. God sent you the dreams, but notice, God sent the dreams to Pharaoh. No one in Egypt could interpret them. So why did God do that? Was he playing sort of a game of, nah, 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 nah. I'm going to show you who's the strongest. Is that what is God doing? Well, what did he do that for? Why send somebody a dream and not give him the key to interpret it? What would he do that for? Yes. The primary reason, though, it was because of wrath. Right? So when someone breaks the covenant, he incurs the, the, the wrath of the covenant, the curses. And one of which is what? When truth departs from you and you're left in darkness. Why? Because God wants you to see in what darkness you're in. Yeah? So it's still medicinal. Pharaoh is in such great darkness that God speaks to him and shows him the darkness by giving him something nobody can understand. In the hope that what? That when Joseph comes, Pharaoh will go, whoa, that guy has got something I don't have. And that hopefully this will spur Pharaoh to what? To this holy jealousy. So jealousy is not always a sin, right? Envy is always a sin, but not jealousy. The holy jealousy would be, whoa, whatever that guy has, I want it. That's why God puts saints in front of us. So we can say, whatever he's got, I want, to have. I, I want that. See, this is why all this has happened for Pharaoh. Yes, I don't think there is any official pronouncement. Usually the church does not have official pronouncements. It's very interesting. The church will not come up with official pronouncements. However, there are certain there are passages in, uh, in the encyclicals of John Paul II where he speaks of an unprecedented crisis such as the world has never seen before. This is strong language coming from pontiff, right? What you need to do is really read, uh, uh, read the Humanae Vitae, another perfect example. Humanae Vitae, by the way, is four pages. It's one of the easiest encyclicals to read. It is not theological. Theological, the language is not obscure or obtuse. It requires you to have a degree in theology. It's written in a very gentle, um, accessible style. Read it and then read what... The, the, the Holy Father prophesied will happen if contraception is allowed to spread in the world. Just read what he said. And had people heeded his word back then, who would not be in the, in, in, the, in, you know, in the depth of trouble we're in right now. Right? Another thing you can always do is just try to understand, and, and again, 
observe things in terms of Scripture, but observe them in terms of their own reality, right? I was telling my wife, and you've heard me talk about this, and I told you I'm going to have two talks that are completely going to detail the subject in, in complete, um, it goes really down to the nth degree on them, this issue of women wearing pants. And I told my wife, here's what's going to happen. This is where this is leading to. What this is going to lead to is men wearing skirts. Why? Because today, for us, it's completely acceptable women wear, wear pants. About 60 years ago, or 70 years ago, it was scandalous. For a woman to wear the, uh, the, the clothing of a man was scandalous, just as it would be scandalous or unacceptable for us to see a man dressed in skirts or in a um, in dress. I just told this to my wife about two weeks ago, and two days ago on Le Monde in France, they have now the day of skirts. A bunch of guys dressed in skirts, standing with flags, saying we support women equalities. You know what? They are logical. If you want equality of gender, if women are allowed to wear, to put on men's clothing, it should be just as acceptable for men to put on women's clothing. And it will happen. In your own lifetime, you will see your children, your boys, you'll have to fight with them for them not to wear skirts. The confusion of the sexes that was started when we allowed this is going to carry all the way through. And with it comes a host of issues within the family. And as I said, I know this for many of you, this is sort of, what is he talking about? This guy's completely radical. But... Once you listen to these two talks, you'll understand where I'm coming from, what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah, they looked like a dress. But back then, this is a very good question. When you looked at the way Jesus was dressed, at the time, if you saw somebody coming at you, you would never, ever get confused. Is this a guy or a girl? The, 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 the cut was completely different, such that it was very clear this was a man, this was a woman. Now, the Romans were confused if you see how the soldiers were even dressed, right? So that's what we're going back to, right? That's what we're going back to. And we need to understand that behind all this clothing is a fundamental issue which people are pushing here today, and that is gender is not essential to who you are. And as soon as you confuse the genders, you break the family completely, right? And that is part of God's plan. That is part of God's plan, related to contraception, the breakdown in the family, and everything that follows from it. Once you can combine all this into a coherent picture, you look at it and say, God, you give us, you're giving us our due. You're giving us our due. We have sinned before you. Right? And that's this prophetic view, this, this understanding of God's action today in our society with regards to His holiness, what we have done and, not, and failed to do, is what we're missing. And we substitute that to a, a view of uh, us versus them, these bad people out there, and we're the good ones, which is completely wrong. Right? It's not us against them, it's us for them, because this is how Jesus would, have, would want it. Right? So, the point that I wanted to make here is that you have God speaking to people who are very confused 
and he speaks in natural imagery. Cows and grains and all of that stuff. Today, he speaks to the world in the same way. Right? Volcanoes and earthquakes and disturbances in nature and heat when we, don't ha- we shouldn't have heat and cold when we should not have cold. Disturbances in, in the economy, breakdown in the economic structures. We have countries who are failing now. This is unprecedented at the level at which we're seeing it. Scandinavia, then Greece, now possibly Portugal, Spain, and who knows what, what's next, right? We know, we know our, the concerns we have over the dollar and where this is going, right? So by some estimate, the, the total debt of the United States is about $11 trillion, which we're thinking it will never get paid. And so the impact on the dollar may be catastrophic, right? If you're following the financial sector, so, I don't know if this is true or not. I'm not saying it is true. I'm not an expert. I'm just saying there are many who speak this way. What is this indicating to us? It's simply indicating that God is speaking to us through the ways of nature and telling us and showing us what exactly. Why is he doing all this? What is he trying to show us? That's he showed Pharaoh. What is he showing us? He's showing us the inner confusion in the heart of men. He's showing us how broken we are, how confused we are, how lost we are, and how much in a big mess we are internally in our hearts. He shows us that by means of nature. Right? What is that? It's a call to repentance. It's a call to change. It's a call to holiness that God extends to all of humanity. But guess what? If humanity gets to the point where confusion sets in, and men and women begin to call a lie truth, and truth a lie, and teach it to their children, then society as a whole becomes unredeemable. Worse, society becomes essentially breeding what? Vipers. Brood of vipers. It's breeding children for hell. At which point, out of his own goodness and mercy, what does God do? He cuts the tree that does not produce fruits and burns it outside. So anytime a political power raises that opposes the Catholic Church and her mission to bring the good news, when the opposition reaches such a degree that you just can't go through, God cuts it off. Why? Because he's always in control. Now, what is lying in the back of our mind, our our very selfish mind is, whoa, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my people, the one I love? Never mind everybody else. Never mind God's glory. That, that's secondary. What's going to happen to me? Which brings us back to the very beginning where we started. Do you trust that God is all-powerful, can do all things, and do you trust that God is love and that He loves you? And if so, knowing that you're going to die, what does it matter to you how you're going to die? No one can save his life. We're all going to die barring the second coming, etc., etc., right? But we're all going to die. Don't you think God has already prepared before the beginning of the world the means and mode of your own death? If one hair from your head is not going to fall to the ground without Him knowing about it, don't you think He knows, meaning He is involved and has prepared the way you are going to die? And then it would be the most loving and most 
merciful and most glorious death so that you'll spend the next two billion years in heaven saying only one thing, thank you God, thank you God, thank you God, thank you God. How dumb I was, how dumb I was to be afraid, how dumb I was, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. That's what we're here for. This is pilgrimage. This is not home. We're passing by. We're on our way to heaven. The door is death. The question is, how do we enter it, and where does it lead? That's all. St. Teresa of Avila is said to have had a skull on her, on her desk. And many of the saints had a skull to remind them constantly, I'm going to die. And I like what Father Isaac told us about a man, I forgot who it was, who had on his, in front of his bed a big sign that said, so-and-so, John Doe, his name, right? Born the day of his birth, died, and every day he'd put the, the day, the date. And so before he would sleep, he would look at this to remind himself, I might die tonight. Am I ready? Joseph was ready. Are you ready? I may not see some of you next week. I may not be here next week. Are you ready? What does it matter how the world is going to go? I mean, are you ready? That's all that matters. As St. Hardini would say, the wise man saves his soul. Because when you save your soul, you save a whole bunch with you. Are you ready? That's what matters. So, you see here, Joseph comes across, does this interpretation of dream, and Pharaoh rewards him by giving him these goods. But the other point I want to make before I let you go, which is important, is that Joseph lives a life that is unperturbed. Why? Why was his life afterwards unperturbed? Why was it always, um, in a sense, glorious? Because Joseph had one wife. Not four, like Jacob. One. He had a monogamous relationship. One wife. He was faithful to her. She was faithful to him. An Egyptian. The spirit blows where it wills. She was faithful to him. He was faithful to her. They had two children. And they were faithful. He didn't take on a concubine and do this other thing and a bunch of other complications like Jacob did. And you see the complication flowed from it and Abraham did before him. The two, the two patriarchs who had a monogamous relationship, Isaac had a peaceful life for the most part, right? And Jacob and, and Joseph. Everybody is related in this story. Everybody is related. It's a family mess. We messed up the family Society gets messed up. That's what's going on here, right? Yet the one who had an ordered life at home was able to order society by providing food to everyone. And the greatest sign that what I'm saying to you is important to God is that Jesus Christ lived 30 years under the roof of his mother. This is how important the family was to him. Yeah? The rest of it would be details I'm not going to have time to go through. But essentially, from all of the story that you know well, we see that Joseph is raised, and he's the one who becomes the minister of agriculture, and he takes care of bringing on the grains and then giving them back out 
when the need arises. And then next week, we'll deal with the coming, the dramatic coming down from Canaan of his brothers to visit him. So what we're going to do now is finish with a word of prayer, and after that, we can take some more questions. All right, questions? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. The question was, is the Vatican a good source of, uh, a good source of information, the Vatican, Vatican website? Oh, absolutely. The Vatican website is the, the first source you'd go to for any documents of the church. The other one, obviously, is just the catechism. I mean, you want to know what the church teaches? Just read the catechism. Read one paragraph or two a day. Get in the habit of just reading a couple of paragraphs a day. You don't have to do more than that. Yes. We, this is a very good question. When did Joseph acquire this prophetic spirit? We don't know, but we do know that he had dreams when he was little. And back then, he did not have the interpretation of them. He just spoke the dreams and didn't have a way of explaining what they are. Although his brothers, notice, and his father immediately understood the meaning of the dream. So it wasn't only his. They were able to interpret the dream and interpret it correctly. It is something that is really common to all, uh, all the people of God, especially in our time. In the case of Joseph, one might surmise that it happened when he was in jail. So suffering and purification brought that about. It's not a two-year period in jail. It's two years since the uh, cupbearer was freed. But he was in jail before that. So it's more like seven to ten years of jail. Yes. Oh, uh, the difference between the soul and the spirit. The soul is the spiritual part of man that animates us. Right? So man is made of a physical, a physical component, which is the body, and of a spiritual component, which is the soul. Hence, man is soul and body. The spirit is effectively the uh, presence of God in man. For man cannot live without God. So therefore, within man, there is the soul, and there is the body, and then there is the spirit present in man that animates the soul, that gives it life. Yes, animals have a material soul. The difference is that in the case of an animal, when the animal dies, the soul dies with it. The soul does not survive the body in the case of animals. In the case of the human being, the soul is imperishable. The soul does not die. We are immortal. That's the difference. The spirit is simply the uh, principle of life. Therefore, when, uh, when uh, the, 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 the animal dies, the spirit is not dead, just that the presence of the spirit in the animal is not there anymore. It departs. Make sense? Yeah? So, for instance, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, God takes Ezekiel, the priest, he's the only priest prophet among all the prophets, and he takes him and brings him to the temple and shows him underneath the temple the secret room where 70 elders, presumably the Sanhedrin, meaning the body of uh, elders who governed the temple, who were worshipping loathsome creatures. They were essentially worshipping demons under the, uh, the, the temple. And after this vision, the, 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 the Shekinah, which is the presence, a Sakinah, the presence of the Spirit leaves the temple. It departs. And after that, the temple is destroyed. So the presence of the Spirit is not just within us. It is also in our own homes. So for instance, when you have a house where the man and the woman are living 
in conformity with the plan of God and are open to life, then what flows between them, what makes them one, what brings them together, what bonds them is what? The Holy Spirit. What does the Creed say about the Holy Spirit? We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, giver of life. Okay, when they contracept, what do they do? They're basically saying to God, we don't need you. We'll take care of that. We know good and evil. As a result, what happens to the presence of the Spirit? He leaves. And just as the temple is destroyed, what happens to this household? It's destroyed. Yeah, that's why contraception is such an incredible, vicious uh, trap in which so many fall. Yes. Well, if they are already contracepting, you're, 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 having, um, you're having double difficulties. Remember, when, you, when somebody commits a sin and it becomes a habitual mortal sin, what follows, the first thing of, uh, from the, the very first curse that hits them is the hardness of heart. So they become rebellious. And if you were to point out to them the wrong, the, the, what's wrong in their ways, they rebel even further. Right? We're going to see that in the book of Exodus. It happens to, to Pharaoh. So you're now dealing with somebody who's already unwilling to listen to you. In that case, what has to happen is lots of sacrifices and lots of prayers and fasting on behalf of this person. To top it off, what he has done by committing that kind of sin is invite the demons in, into his household. So now not only do you have to fight against his own rebellion, you have to fight against the demons who are set on keeping him going this way. So, for instance, you may have a conversation with them over something. You're not even talking about contraception. You're bringing up something about, oh, I've seen this family with kids, and they're doing this and then the other, and they just get into a fit of rage and start screaming. This is the devil who is pricking them and getting them to get really upset so they cannot listen to you. Typically what happens, realistically, they stop talking to you after a while. That's the reality of it. And then you have to rely on prayer and hope that somebody, God will send them someone like he sent the Ethiopian. He sent St. Philip to the Ethiopian, right? Who didn't know how to understand scripture and that uh, they'll wake up. But typically they have to go all the way down to be wanting to eat what the pigs eat before God can actually reach them. It's a long and difficult journey most of the time, unfortunately. Yes, absolutely. And it happens a lot now, doesn't it? Right. Uh, first of all, one thing I would recommend if you're having issues with priests, the question is, how do you deal with, you, you, want, to be, uh, you want to have show love to priests and bishops, but some of them, unfortunately, are not obedient to the church. How do you deal with this? Okay. A couple of things I would recommend. First, read the history of the Catholic Church. Become very familiar with the history of the Catholic Church. It will give you a grand perspective over what happened down the ages. So once you realize that when the Arian heresy was at its peak, 80%, of all Catholic bishops were heretics. When you think of that, you go, hmm, we don't have it that bad after all. When you read, read the history of the Council of Trent, 
I recommend you read the history of the Council of Trent. In fact, you can pick it up through the life of Saint... Um, um, he's a doctor of the church, and he was at the Council of Trent. It's not Saint Maximus. It's Saint uh, Peter Canisius. Find the life of Saint Peter Canisius. Very few people know who Saint Peter Canisius is, unfortunately. Very few people know that Poland at one point, at one point became Protestant, and it was Saint Peter who brought Poland back to the Catholic Church. And through it, you will find out what happened during the Council of Trent. In, during that time, uh, St. Peter received a letter from a Protestant convert who became a priest. And that priest in Germany. And he was writing about the priests, his fellow priests. And he would say to St. Peter, hardly any of them is not found in the tavern at the end of the day. Hardly any of them does not have a mistress and is engaged in incest. Once you read that, you go, hmm, let me put things into perspective. The other thing it will give you is to see how these saints dealt with the situation. Right? So that's the first, the first thing. Anytime you're having issues with the priest and bishop, and the read the history of the church. It will give you a much broader context. The second thing I would recommend is this. Usually, I'll tell you this, when you're having an issue with a priest, you're not having an issue with a priest. You're having an issue with God. You're angry at God. Why? Because God is not doing what you expect Him to do. You want to control God. That's what you want. When you're upset with a priest that he's not doing this, that, or the other, or you're angry at him, or frustrating with him, or the bishop, or whomever, you're angry with God. Why? Why am I saying that? Okay, who's in control? Okay, if God is in control, why does he allow that priest to do what he did? The sexual abuses and this and that and the other. Or why does he allow the priest to do what you don't like if he's in control? But, but you, yes, to bring it, but, but I mean, understand it from your own emotional response. Who you're angry with? With God. But you're not going to go tell God, I'm angry with you. I mean, he wished you'd do that. He wished you'd stand in front of him and yell at him. Then instead of having yelling at his priest. Because you know what? He can take it. He's on the cross. He's supposed to. But let's say he's not. Right? Let's, let's assume he's not. Right? Saint John of Ars. Saint John of Ars. Saint John of Ars said this. I will never disrespect a priest. And he had his dealings with some of them who thought he was cuckoo, St. John Vianney, St. John of Ars, sorry. Yeah, he is the, the curé d'Ars. So I know it in French, and I'm stuck with it, so that's how it goes. Anyhow, St. John Vianney, he had his dealing with the priest, because, you know, he, he had a hard life with Latin and all that. He didn't do really well with this. I wonder sometimes if he didn't have ADD. So, seriously. So anyhow... Some of them looked down on him, and then when he started having all these issues, you know, fire in his room, waking them up in the middle of the night, they couldn't sleep. They thought he was kind of cuckoo or something. He had his issues with them, but he said, I will never. It's him or St. Francis, one of the two. I don't remember now. One of the two saints. I will never criticize a priest because he 
holds in his hands the sacred body of our Lord. That's the attitude to have. You have an issue with a priest? I, not you in particular, I'm just saying you. Stand in front of the picture of our Lord and tell him. Okay, let him deal with it. Now, now you're really having an authentic relationship with Jesus. Lord, you're in control. What's, what's happening here? What's going on? Right? Some of us have our pet peeves in different areas. Some it's priests. Others, like me, it's the uh, occasional or vacational Catholics. You know, the ones that show up at Christmas and Easter and never set foot in the church between these two feasts. And you're coming here to worship, and they already flooded the church, and you're spending your whole liturgy standing back there, and they're talking, and they're being loud, and they sit and they cross their legs, and somehow they're chewing gum. I mean, it's a mess. Mass becomes near occasion of sin, right? And, and then you look and you see Jesus on the cross, and you see he didn't take off. He could have. And then you think of the words he spoke to his disciples when everybody else deserted him over the Eucharist. He looked at them and said, and you, are you going to leave me too? And he's saying the same thing. Are you going to leave me too? Right? We all have our pet, but as long as we take it with him, as long as we understand if we have an issue, God is talking to us. Let's talk back to God. Then we are in conversation with God, as St. Jose Maria Escriva would say in conversation with God. Right? If an organization, here's what I would say, if any organization is increasing in you faith, hope, love, and charity, devotion to the church, lifting your spirit to God, it's a good organization to be in. If it's bringing in your soul spirits of perturbance, doubt, anxiety, question, it's not bearing the right fruits. This is what St. Augustine would say about any teaching in the church. If there is a teaching that causes you to think, whoa, I should go to confession, that's a good thing. If the teaching is making you angry and upset, that may not be for you. Fair? Yeah? Pants? Yeah, the church today is not teaching anything on the subject. So what I'm talking about is more an invitation for women to reflect on this. Why is the church not teaching anything about it? No more is the church teaching anything about the veil, right? On that, because of the hardness of heart. In times where we become cold, the church lowers her expectations. See, the problem is, so the priest said it's a necessity for contemporary times because their engineers said they must wear pants. The problem with this position is that it's contradicting very strong statements in Scripture. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says to Moses, a woman shall not wear men's clothes, and then adds, it is an abomination in the eyes of God. Now, abomination is used in very specific contests. I don't have time to go through it, but I will in this tape. I will list precisely where God uses the word abomination. There are certain things that happen that God condemns where he doesn't use the word abomination. For instance, he says, a man shall not lay with a sheep. It's part of the things that you're not supposed to do. But he does not add, it is, if my memory serves me right, it is an abomination. But in the case of a woman wearing men's clothing, he says, it's an abomination. So I really don't understand how anyone can dismiss it so easily. 
Now, I, I am not going to discuss this any further right now. It takes some building blocks first. And once you go through, you listen to the, to the, to the talks, you can submit the questions directly on the, on the website. I'm not going to take them in here. All I'm trying to point out, as an this was an example I'm trying to give you to the way our society moves right before our eyes. But if you don't have the Spirit of God in us and we live a biblical life, it's really hard for us to see them as they are happening. That's really the point I was trying to make. Not to put emphasis particularly on the subject. I picked it because it's controversial and it is difficult, but not because I wanted to discuss it here. All right? Yes. Oh, very good. No, no, very good, uh, uh, Helen. The, what I was trying to say is that if you are part of a Bible study, even such as this one, or you're reading a book, uh, anything that is not official teaching of the church, because these will always bear fruit if you follow them. But you're, you're listening to someone who is fallible. I don't claim infallibility. I try to follow what the church teaches, but I'm not infallible. If, at the end of the day, this is spurring you on, if it's lifting your soul to, to God, if it's helping you um, clean up your life, helping you attend to the sacraments more, helping you uh, crave holiness more, then you know it is from God. Regardless of what anything else happens. But if it's actually putting into you a spirit of doubt, anxiety, questioning, um, a spirit where you're, you're, that, that is actually killing the life of prayer in you, or instilling doubts in the church, flee. That is not from God. Does this make sense? Yes. Just let it go. Does this make sense? Yes. True. It is true. The question, the difficulty, you're absolutely correct. The church has spoken on the subject in, in, in the past, as it's spoken on many different subjects. So the veil, for instance. Should a woman put a veil on her head when she goes into the church? Today, in the canon, in new canon, it is not required. It was required in the old canon. There's debate over the fact, well, if the new canon does not say, does not contradict the old canon, then the old canon stand. And people get into this canonical debate, and none of them, including myself, are canonical lawyers. So what do you know? It's the wrong way of talking about the subject. We're, when we start talking about grammar and Greek and canon, we're in trouble. Right? That's why it gets to be really difficult, in, especially when something becomes so ingrained in the mentality. Wearing pants... I understand, but even some statements from the Pope do not apply today anymore. Like, for instance, on Galileo, right? What I'm trying to explain to you, Fatty, is that some statements don't necessarily apply at all times. They're not infallible statements. Other apply at all times. And sometimes it is not easy to tell one from the other. And you'll find people, particularly on this subject, on both sides of the camp. Some will say it still applies. Others will say, no, it doesn't. As this priest, for instance, who I'm sure have good intentions said that. And he's not the only priest, by the way. I've heard other priests speak in the same way. So that's where the difficulty is. It's not enough to point them to what, what, what the church said before. They can point you to other statements that do not hold today anymore. For instance, fasting. The church changed the rules about fasting. We don't, we're not required today to fast the way we were required before. Before, it used to be the case that if you ate or drank anything before coming to Mass, you committed a mortal sin. No longer today. So then they can argue Likewise, in that particular case, it, was, it applied back then. It doesn't apply today. Circumstances have changed. So we need more than, than that in order to present the case of this whole issue. Yes? Correct. So the question is, if the creed does not include the Son or the Holy Spirit as a trinity, then it's not the, 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 re, the right creed. 
What I am referring to is one specific aspect called the procession of the Holy Spirit. And in the Catholic Church, both statements are correct. You may say the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. That is a true statement. And if you go back to the Council of Nicaea, that was the statement of the Council of Nicaea. Right? Um, the, 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 the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Then the Pope later on added, and from the Son. And that's something the Orthodox are, don't agree with us on. Because in their mind, the, the Holy Father did not have the right to add it. We say he does. And that's the, what is at issue. But the creed, as um, uh, the rest of the, and both of those creeds, whether you say proceeds or doesn't, are fine. What you're not allowed to do is deny, as a Catholic, that the, that the statement, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, is correct. You cannot say this is false. But you're not obligated to say it. So there are, there, there are levels of variability within the church when you look at different rites and the way, the, way the Mass is celebrated. Correct. You're absolutely correct. We tend to think of the Spirit in this way because Jesus wanted us to honor and venerate and adore the Holy Spirit. So he told us about sending his Spirit. But at the same time, he said, right, we will come to you and abide in you. And he meant the Holy Trinity. So yes, it is a Trinity. Even in the tabernacle, we tend to think of Jesus. But in reality, it is the indwelling of the Trinity. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. We tend to ascribe certain activities to certain specific persons of the Trinity, but the theological reality is it is always the Trinity acting as one, because it's one God. You're, you're absolutely correct. Yes. Any other question? Yes. Yeah, the best answer to this question, who goes to heaven, is to ask them, to put to them the question of <sighs> truth. The priest may mean to say not all, not Catholics only go to heaven. That is a correct statement. There's no error in it. You may have someone today who is not a member of the Catholic Church who goes to heaven. What I said was, those who enter heaven are Catholic. Yes. Do you see the difference? It's subtle, but it's important. Yes. Somebody who dies, when, when somebody dies, he may not be Catholic. But by the time he enters heaven, he's Catholic. That's what I'm saying. Put it differently. There are only Catholics in heaven. Does this help? No. no. I, and I, did, I was very careful in my statement. I do not mean that only those who are formally inscribed in the Catholic Church. No, but you will see that what they mean is this old joke of the Protestant arriving to heaven and then uh, St. Peter showing him heaven and then he gets to one part and he tiptoes. says, what, what, what's going on here? He says, you have to tiptoe because this is where the Catholics are and they think they're, they're alone. Right? It's a joke that re reflects on what I am talking about. The truth of the matter is, they are alone. There is nobody else. Now, this might be shocking if you never really reflected on the church and her, her, her nature, but I'll put it to you this way. Again, some of you have heard me, and you can use that as an example because it centers on the truth, and the truth of Jesus Christ, and the truth cannot be divided. Yes? So all those in heaven share the truth, yes? So can you have in heaven two truths? There's only one. Okay, so let's take a particular truth we hold dear in our hearts. That Mary is what? One of her titles? Queen of heaven and earth. Let's just focus on heaven. Queen of heaven. So 
a Protestant gets to the door of heaven. He's about to enter heaven. All his life he believed Mary is just a vessel. She's not important. He's about to enter heaven, and he takes a peek, and he sees all the angels and all the saints kneeling, bowing before the queen of heaven. What's going to happen to him? Whoops. Can you say whoops in heaven? It's not heaven for him, is it? Yeah? Likewise. Likewise. So even let's say somebody who's not baptized, who loves Jesus, but he decides, I'm just going to take this part of Jesus, not this other part. Whoops. Yeah? Do you understand? Ah, can they change their minds? No, I'm saying let's take a Muslim who has love for Jesus and decides that he wants to believe in Jesus. But he believes in Jesus, so he believes in 95, no, 99% of what the church teaches, but drops 1%. One. Hold on. Can he go to heaven? No. No. Why? Because St. Thomas teaches, if you do not believe in everything the Catholic Church teaches, you don't have faith. Faith is not something that, you know, I've got 20% faith, you got 22%. You have it or you don't. Right? So this Muslim, who might believe in a piece of Jesus, but not all of it, right? Now, does this mean you have to know everything? No. It doesn't. All you have to do is what this must did on the cross. It's carte blanche. Jesus, whatever you say, I'll believe it. Your queen, your mother is queen of heaven? That's good for me. St. Joseph is the greatest saint? I, I'm, I'll go say hi to St. Joseph. Whatever you say, I'll, that is the proper childhood attitude of somebody. The faith of the centurion, the faith of the Syrophoenician woman. That faith doesn't require you to know everything. It requires you to love everything, even if you don't know it. That's the difference. Yeah? So that's what we're talking about. That's why there are only Catholics in heaven, obviously. It's logical, isn't it? Otherwise, Jesus is what? There's Jesus for the Protestants, and there's Jesus for the Catholics, and Jesus for the Buddhists, and on and on we go. And, and yet Jesus put an end to this when he said what? I am the truth. He didn't say, I got the truth. I know the truth. I make the truth. I am the truth. He's one. There aren't 22 Jesuses. There's just one. Therefore, the truth is one. The truth is indivisible. You can't divide Jesus. The truth is, is without contradiction. There is no contradiction in Jesus. The, the truth is whole, logical, complete, coherent, as Jesus is. Hence, it's one. If the church teaches one thing that is wrong, all of the faith is gone. That's why the church is infallible. Yeah? Is, have, have I cleared that for you? Okay. Very good. Yes? He's talking about uh, heaven. In the house of my father, there are many uh, rooms. That does not mean in the house of my father, there are many truths. What he means is there are many degrees of glory because of the angels that have fallen. The fathers believe that we in heaven will make up the number of the fallen angels. And the different rooms, as in a house, if you think about a house, the house has different rooms. There's the master bedroom, then there is this, the bathroom, and there's... So there are rooms with different degree of importance. But it's one house, one truth. Almost. What you said is that according to His mercy, according to the truth that is in them, almost, with one proviso, provided that they 
accept all the truths taught by the church. Okay? St. Paul tells us, don't you know that you will be judging angels? The house of God will be judging angels. This is the dignity of the people of God. Provided we do not go against the teachings of the church, provided we are not rebellious against what the church teaches, then the rest will work. But if you say, no, I will not serve, we can't enter. Make sense? The people, no, you see, again, purgatory isn't for you to change your mind. Purgatory, from the get-go, you must submit before death to everything that the church teaches. If you don't, if you refuse, you're saying, I don't want to be there. Do you understand? Purgatory is a place to, to remit punishment due to temporal sins. And at the same time, a place of purification for those who are not yet fully purified, which is pretty much all of us, right? That's what purgatory is for. But you already, at the moment of death, that's, you decide your fate while alive, not in purgatory. Right? Purgatory has already decided. So while alive, you have to make a decision. Jesus, I don't know everything the church taught. Right? And I, I, maybe I neglected some. Have mercy on me. Right? And I, I lived, but, but essentially, objectively, I lived according to the church. I may not have known that contraception was a moral sin, but I never used it. Right? I may not have known that I was required to study scripture. I may not have known that there is a duty to pray. I may not have known what my duties are. I didn't really bother studying them, right? But I love your mother. So Mary can come and say, son, if you love me, let him in. And provided there is no moral sin on my soul, Jesus will let me in. Why? Because in, in, innately I'm saying, whatever you say, I'll believe. There is no resistance on my part to refuse something. You'd, it's just I was lazy. That's a different issue. You see, I didn't put a fundamental block between me and God by refusing to believe something. Yeah, this is the key. Truth will set you free. Follow me, says Jesus. I will lead you to the truth. The truth will set you free. That's why, while you're alive, know your faith. Okay, look, St. Paul is very clear. All you need to do to go to hell is to neglect what you know. That's enough. Why? Think about it. It's really simple. We complicate it. We make it mysterious. It's the simplest, most basic thing in the world. There is this woman who's my wife, and I, I say I love her. But I neglect her. I don't want to know more about her, you know. It's too much trouble. We have to sit down and talk. And we have, I have to listen. And she's going to tell me all these mushy stuff. And there's no keyboard in them, and it's not geeky. Why should I make an effort? You get my point? That's what they're doing. Pray for them and offer sacrifice. All right? Let's finish with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.